On this week's 51%, we hear from the CEO of an organization that supports women survivors of conflict in a number of countries. You don't have to be a CEO. You don't have to be a vice president to be a leader. Anyone can be a leader in your own sphere. And you can make a difference wherever you are. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra will have its first woman CEO. I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. Women for Women International supports women survivors of conflict in Afghanistan, Bosnia, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Iraq, Kosovo, Nigeria, Rwanda, and South Sudan offering support, tools, and access to skills to move from crisis and poverty to stability and economic self-sufficiency. The organization also campaigns globally for equality. Lori Adams is the global CEO of Women for Women International, with more than 25 years of experience working in international development and human rights. Adams spoke with 51%'s Elizabeth Hill. So Women for Women was founded during the Bosnian War by Zainab Salbi and Amjad Atala, who in their early 20s were absolutely outraged by what was happening in what was known then as the Bosnian rape camps. And they were absolutely determined to show solidarity from Americans initially, but this support ended up spreading to over 80 countries in the world. And it started literally as a direct connection from a sister to a sister, sending cash through the war lines, actually, to get to to women in camps who had no other means of support. Because not only had they been ripped from their families, but because of the patriarchal norms around um, women's sexuality, once they had been raped, um, their own communities and families might not um, accept them back. So um, from there, um, over the last 27 years, Women for Women has grown to now be working in eight countries all of which have suffered the most extreme forms of gender discrimination, genocide, conflict, targeting women who are ultra poor, the most marginalized. So from Bosnia going on to Kosovo, Rwanda after the genocide, Iraq, we're now in northern Iraq, we serve the Yazidi uh, population as well as Iraqi uh, um, displaced and Syrian refugees, Congo, northern Nigeria where there's great conflict, so um, it's, a, it's a movement. It's a global community of people who provide support to our sisters when they are most in need. And it's now, as I said, in eight country with uh, fundraising centers in the U.S., Germany, and the U.K., supporters in more than 80 countries, gi- giving direct cash, training, and psychosocial support to women to help them rebuild their lives and reclaim their power. Because women have power, but it's stripped from us when we are ignored and our contributions are undervalued and our voices are silenced. So we believe all women have innate power and it's the situations and the context around us which try to strip us from that. And by coming together in communities, by bringing women together in communities, we can regain that power. Can you talk about some of the unique challenges in a few of the countries that Women for Women works in? So it's it's really interesting because um, the way that sexism plays out is actually quite different from country to country. So if you think about in Afghanistan, uh, the norms say that women must stay in their homes. They can't even travel without their husband's permission. Um, they're not meant to be going out for to work outside the home. And um, 
It's very much a highly constrained role. That isn't the same in northern Nigeria. In northern Nigeria, women are expected um, to do a lot of hard labor, to work in the fields, uh, to bring home food. There's a lot of punishment if a woman doesn't manage to feed her family. And so, uh, but in both cases, women's roles are heavily constrained. Decision-making is in the power of men. And even as in Northern Nigeria or Congo, where the law says that women should be equal, that women have inheritance rights, the customary norms uh, often deny women that. So what is different is the form of constraint, the form of devaluing. What is the same is highly creative ways and awful ways to try to keep women in a servitude role um, that limits their ability to achieve their full potential. You guys are launching a new campaign, The Power to Change. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, We have a fantastic global community across 80 countries. And what we want to do is build more active support to um, use our power in support of each other. So if you go to our website at womenforwomen.org and go to the Power to Change commitment, you'll see what is a really powerful statement, uh, the power to change our world. It starts with a world that does not respect women's power, talked over, silenced, ignored, our our talents rejected, our achievements brushed aside, our bodies violated. When conflict erupts, we suffer most. The statement goes on for a bit longer, but it concludes with, commit to your part, big or small. Stand up for women's rights. Speak out against sexism. Break down regressive, repressive social norms. Share your story. Support every woman, anywhere, everywhere. Because together, we will harness the power of women for women. So we're asking people to sign this commitment in the run-up to International Women's Day, to make commitments, to use our power, to share our stories, educate ourselves, connect with each other, and and support women. Um, We've already had over 2,500 signatures. Um, and um, by signing up to this pledge, it helps take that extra step. It's really tough times all over the world right now, but every small action we take is so powerful, and I can't tell you what a difference a small action makes. I was in DRC Congo last March, right before we all had to um, go into um, no travel and social distancing, and the last woman I spoke to in our program had just had the most horrific life, um, thrown out by her family, held as a sex slave, you know, just really horrific things that are just unimaginable. Um, and she had enrolled in our program recently, and she told a story of getting her monthly stipend. We, we give $10 a month. And she told the story of what it meant to her when she got given that $10. And $10 itself, I mean, even in Congo, $10 is not that much money. But for her, what it represented was that somewhere somebody believes in me. They want to make an investment in me. And that act of solidarity, that act of believing in her, gave her confidence. And she was so excited. And she was talking about the businesses she was going to build and her plans to build a home and get her own land. And that small act of believing in and supporting catalyzed all that power she has inside of her. And we can do that to our neighbors. We can do that to each other. Listen to each other's stories, acts of kindness. When we share our stories, we know that we're not alone. And that itself helps us feel more powerful and more able to move forward.
I'm excited to see which historical and current well-known women that you guys highlight in this campaign. Do you have any particular favorite women's rights activists? Well, you know, one of the things about the way history is written is that so often the women who do the most are the ones that whose names we we don't know. Um, for me, you know, one of the most powerful women is, of course, our own founder, Zainab Selby. The fact that she, her own history, which you can find in her book um, about her story, is that her father worked for Saddam Hussein. And when Saddam Hussein started to show an interest in her when she was a young girl, in obviously inappropriate ways, her mother had her married off to someone in the United States to get her away from Saddam Hussein. It was into she didn't understand it. She had been yeah. raised as a modern woman who, you know, believed in choosing your partner out of love, and she couldn't understand why her mother had done this to her. She got sent to the United States in a really abusive relationship. She managed to escape. And from there, at age 23, she found the strength and the power to not only build her own life up, but to start this organization that has now saved, you know, helped over half a million women and has reached hundreds of thousands of supporters across the world for 27 years. So there's an example of somebody who, you know, had very little and has managed to create great change. Another woman that has a strong link to Women for Women's history is, you know, one of the women we all look up to, which is Oprah. Oprah heard the story of Zainab. She heard the story of the women in our program, and she spread the word through her own show seven times featuring some of the women leaders that have emerged from our program. Women like Anurata. Anurata is somebody you've never heard of, but she's a woman who was um, raised in the Eastern Congo. She actually, because of her mother's strength and belief, um, got some education and she became a teacher. But she was kidnapped and kept as a sex slave. And once she managed to escape um, after a horrific year, her own family didn't accept her back. She ended up in our program. She ended up um, being such a good part, you know, success uh, because of her education, we're able to hire her as a trainer. And she has gone on since to train 2,000 other women. You know, women in our program know, you know, here's her story. Here's Anurata's story. If she can do it, I can do it. And so many of the trainers in our programs are women who themselves have suffered the horrors and indignities that uh, many of our participants do. They're a testament. They're a testament to the power of women's leadership. And we don't believe women's leadership is the big names. Of course, we're inspired by Kamala Harris, for example. Yeah. But you don't have to have, you don't have to be a CEO. You don't have to be a vice president to be a leader. Anyone can be a leader in your own sphere. And you can make a difference wherever you are. Are you looking to expand into other countries? We are. We have a um, what we call a watch list. The, our new strategy actually asks us to expand and share our program with others so that we can reach more. Because while we are so proud that we have served half a million women, one woman at a time, and each of those women have been, you know, rippled out and changed their families and their communities so the impact goes much further, um, there are, by our calculation, some 280 million women who are facing extreme gender discrimination, ultra poverty, and conflict. So we have to come together with others to reach all of those women. And there are 33 countries more than the ones that we currently work in that have that nexus of conflict, extreme gender discrimination, and poverty. And so 
We start off with partnerships with local organizations, a conflict response fund, um, where we get to know a community and we invest in more. We've invested in northern Uganda when there were South Sudanese refugees in, with the Rohingya, um, and now uh, in Syria with a partner called Women Now. And when the conditions are right, when there's enough stability for women to establish businesses, uh, we look to expand our program into more than a partnership with a local organization providing immediate support. So through partnership, uh, um, we, we do reach out to other countries as well. There's also massive need in the countries we're already in. The Nigeria and Congo, if you look at the statistics about where poverty is going, over half of the world's ultra poor, over half will be in Nigeria and Congo within the next decade. So we, it's a drop in the bucket, the drop in the ocean, yeah. what we are currently achieving. We are in several different parts of northern Nigeria in Jos, um, from our base in Jos in northern Nigeria. But there are, Nigeria is a vast country. So our first priority is actually to expand uh, where we are um, to meet the need. We already have a strong foundation and we can build more. So in northern Nigeria, in DRC, Afghanistan right now is facing one of the worst moments of conflict. Um, so many people have died. The conditions are really horrible. The Taliban is increasing its authority and control. And um, the, the rights of women that have been gained uh, slowly and at pace, there, there needs to be much more done to, to retain that. And as the international community pulls out um, with its security support, we as citizens, we as sisters have that much more due to make sure that the hard-won gains are not lost and that there's still space for women to claim their power in Afghanistan. Northern Iraq as well. The, the, the conflict that is there on the border with Turkey and Syria, as well as what's happening in the country, we can do so much. We can help so many women um, and the opportunities there. And it's an opportunity for us. You know, all psychology says that by giving is actually an act in investing in ourselves because it helps our mental health. It helps our world because none of us are free until all of us are free. I met a woman in northern Iraq uh, who said to me, the most powerful thing you can do is provide opportunities for us to help others. Because when you are down, and whether that's here in the United States or whether that's in her life where she was a refugee, she said, when you've had your, uh, your power to, of agency, your power to control your life, your ability to follow through a plan, when all of that has been disrupted, as it has for us right now under COVID as well, the thing that makes you feel best is the ability to make a difference. So by volunteering, by giving, that's what makes us feel more in control, more able to determine our destiny and the destiny of our planet. I'm curious how COVID-19 and the political landscape that's been in turmoil for the last couple of years has affected your U.S. fundraising. Our supporters have been so, so generous. We are so grateful and so humbled. I mean, this last year, so many people lost their jobs. So many people's future was uncertain. And yet, we uh, got the same level of support in 2020 as we did in 2019. And that was a beautiful and unexpected surprise. 
And we know many, many supporters were impacted negatively, had to help. If they didn't lose their jobs themselves, many, many of our supporters had family members they needed to help. Many, many of our supporters were called to um, invest in the anti-racist movement in the United States or to invest in the COVID response. And yet they continue to give to Women for Women because they know and believe in the necessity to invest in women internationally. And they know and believe in the fact that those women are equally hard hit, if not more hard hit. And so we were able to adapt our program to a COVID response. We were able to, in Northern Iraq, continue reaching women um, through digital and mobile and via Viber and WhatsApp. We were able to find ways to create socially distanced training. Um, it's a bit more expensive. We can only bring a smaller group of women together at a time and we have to have all kinds of hygiene protocols. However, we adapted. Our teams were phenomenal on the ground. And the public and our supporters responded. They, they, they wanted to make sure that women in Congo and Nigeria who, think about it, with social distancing, the majority of the women in our program make their livelihoods through trading and, trading and agriculture. And if you can't go out and if you can't go to market and you can't trade, you don't get an income and you don't eat. And so um, our ability to keep cash going, we managed to keep cash going um, to the majority of our participants. That was a lifeline. And we had incredible stories in, for example, in Nigeria, where a group of women decided to share out the stipends they had received from us to other women in the community who they knew needed support. So the generosity spreads from the supporters who stuck with us uh, here in the United States throughout the hardship of the last year um, to the women in our program who then shared that on because we all know how important it is for all of us to rise together. You've been working in women's rights for years and I was wondering if you had any advice for women who are facing inequalities. Well, I think, um, you know, what's been most powerful for me is um, being able to talk to other women about our experiences understanding we're not alone, um, building up the courage to overcome what we've been taught about be nice, be silent, be reasonable. <laughs> um, in the face of many of the injustices we face, being quote unquote reasonable is actually a form of mental health <laughs> illness. You know, it's, 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 it's insanity. We need to speak up. My own I had actually was inspired to work on international justice issues through the anti-racist movement um, and, the, and the apartheid movement um, initially. And it was late, actually, that I started because I felt, you know, as an, an entitled and privileged woman, I need to, you know, use my power to help those who have had more power taken away. And it actually took me quite a while to um, come to terms with the fact that I'm a survivor. I've been raped. Um, and the impact on sexism on me, myself personally, and, and my right and my need to speak out about that and to connect with other women and address um, the multiple forms of discrimination that all of us as women have faced. It was when I was in Nigeria during the Me Too movement, um, and this was only a couple of years ago, and I was speaking to women participants about whether the Me Too movement spoke to them. And they, they laughed a little bit. These were, these were women who are what we call change agents, women who were chosen by the other women in their class as natural leaders and then given additional training so that they can help women advocate for their rights. So, for example, if a woman is being beaded by her husband, a change agent might go with her to, you know, 
negotiate with the husband and discuss with him why this is not a good thing. And so they said, you know, there's zero way that we are going to speak up on social media like you all do. Yeah. Because that is too much of a risk. However, what we do is we come together in groups and we support each other. And they told me their stories. And as they, and they, and they shared with me how much of a risk it is to speak out in a place like northern Nigeria where patriarchal norms are so strong. And I just thought, who am I to not take the risk to share my story? And I stood up on International Women's Day uh, two years ago in an event. And for the first time, um, it was here in D.C., I publicly announced that, um, you know, I, I had survived a rape myself. And this is my mother didn't know. <laughs> so, and I remember just being so scared and thinking, wow, what is this? I'm a woman who has so much in my 50s. And the notion of sharing that somebody abused me yeah. is scary to me. Like, what is it about our society that I'm the one that feels shame and blame and fear about saying that somebody attacked me? It's ridiculous. And so, but by sharing that story, that then led to deeper connections with some of my friends who, because I also did a blog in Ms. Magazine and, and my family and my friends, and we had deeper conversations and connections that allowed us to to expand our power and, exp and deepen our connections. And it's that... You know, and everyone will find their own path. And you, and you have to say, you know, psychically safe. But I would say that that connection and analyze, analyze the structural things that have held you back. You know, don't, we talk now about microaggressions a lot in, in, in relation to racism. And, and, and there's a good critique of microaggression that this is not, there's not, not that much micro about it when people tell yeah. you every day in and out that there's something about you that doesn't fit in that is wrong. That's happened to black people and brown people in our country. And it's happened to women throughout the centuries. And analyzing that and understanding it and seeing the forces that are holding us back. And the one of the privileges for me, I grew up all over the world. I was born in Korea, raised in Germany and Italy. I, I lived in Kenya, Senegal, and South Africa as an adult, married into a family of a different culture, et cetera. And one of the powers you see is that each culture has organized things differently, which makes you know it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, It can be different. And so just as every society has found creative and horrific ways to keep people down in different ways, there's also beautiful and empowering ways that different societies have, have found for connection. So I guess that's my encouragement is um, connect with other women, share your stories, but analyze the structural part as well. What are the, this is not, this is not going to change just through individual changes to attitudes and beliefs. We have to change laws. We have to change norms. We have to change um, the very structures and institutions. It starts with us, um, but it is structural. And that's, that's the shift that Women for Women is, is making as well. When we started 27 years ago, the notion that women should have equal power and that by releasing the power of women, you are building the economy and prosperity and peace for everybody. That was not an accepted notion. You know, Zainab and Amjad were considered very radical and out there. Yeah. Um, now it's widely accepted. So that gives us new opportunities. Now we can say, okay, invest in individual women, help them build up their businesses and to spread peace and prosperity, you know, outward. But let's also come together to, to change the structures, to change what holds us back. And that's what our new strategy at Women for Women says is 
let's do let's build community let's do more advocacy um let's bring women together not only to support each other but also to change the world and that's uh, and that's the power of women for women that was laurie adams global ceo of women for women international she was speaking with 51% elizabeth hill if you want to become involved with the women for women power to change campaign or learn more about the organization's initiatives visit their website at womenforwomen.org. And March not only is Women's History Month, but International Women's Day is recognized on March 8. The Boston Symphony Orchestra has named its first female president and CEO. Gal Samuel, who oversees the Hollywood Bowl and L.A. Philharmonic, will take over the BSO in June. She spoke with 51%'s Josh Landis about her new role. I have uh, about... Uh, 20, more than 25 years experience at the Los Angeles Philharmonic. So most of my career has been spent with that organization. Um, And before that, I had uh, short stints at places like the Minnesota Orchestra, um, Tanglewood, uh, and, um, and Yale. When you think about the future of classical music from the vantage point of early 2021, what do you see and what future do you envision for the BSO? Well, given where we are in early 2021, you know, the first thing we have to do is is think about getting out of this pandemic and and when when that is when we are able to do that and when when the world changes uh, again and we have to think about how we connect with our audiences in this time when it's when it's so hard to connect with our audiences so the first thing I'm anxious to do is get back to sitting in concert halls together um, and having these collective human experiences. Um, and then, you know, I'm, what I need to do is come in and listen and learn about this organization and what makes it tick and, and then really chart that path together with my colleagues here. You're about to become the first female president and CEO of the BSO in its history. What does that mean to you? It's a huge honor, and I, I really understand the symbolism of it, and I embrace it. I mean, representation matters, and I think it's important for young women to know that they can strive to reach the highest levels. And I also think it's important for young men to know that young women can do that. Do you think there's something you can bring to the role as a woman that maybe hasn't been there under male leadership? Oh, you know, I don't know if it's a, if, if it's a gender. Um, I, I don't know if it's about gender. I think that, um, you know, I think that my style is uh, to be collaborative. I like working in teams. I, I want to build consensus among my colleagues. Um, and so that's kind of the approach that I'll be taking. Do you have any favorite pieces of classical music you're looking forward to the BSO performing during your tenure? Uh, you know what, <laughs> Josh, at this point, I am excited to hear live any piece of classical music that anybody wants to play. Gail Samuel will succeed Mark Volpe, who is retiring after 23 years. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1650.